Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. But if Christianity is true, it is of infinite importance. What it cannot be is something in between. Christianity cannot be of mere moderate importance. That's from C.S. Lewis's classic Mere Christianity work. Definitely commend that reading to you. Do you think C.S. Lewis was right about that? I do. See, Christianity is what some scholars like to call historical religion. Historical religion. When what they mean by that is, unlike, say, Buddhism, where you could still be a good Buddhist whether or not you believe that the Buddha ever actually existed in history or not. Because in Buddhism, what counts is your discipline on that eightfold path of wisdom, your self-denial, your meditation, your practice and progress in all these things. Whereas in Christianity, by contrast, you are being asked to trust in what someone else did for you on your behalf. So if it's not true historically, it didn't really happen, where does that leave you? Specifically, you are being asked to trust in the reconciling work accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus being the one and only mediator between God and man, himself the God-man, as the scriptures teach. This reconciliation is what we believe Jesus offers, for example, in our gospel reading today, after his crucifixion and resurrection, he appears before his huddled disciples and greets them with the word peace. Peace. That's shalom in Hebrew, right? Shalom means so much more than just that peaceful, easy feeling that the eagles used to sing about. True shalom reflects an objective state of affairs that pronounces all is right in the world because you have shalom. That is, you have peace with God. True shalom. Think about those wonderfully worded hymn lyrics we sang during that other high feast of the church year, Christmas time. Remember that? And remember this line, peace, shalom. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Thank you, Charles Wesley. That's exactly what we were talking about when we're talking about what Jesus did, what he accomplished by living a sinless life and then dying on the cross as the reconciling sacrifice. Jesus atoned for mankind's sins. And I like that word too, atone, because you can see in it those two smaller words, atone, at one. He makes us at one with God. He atones for our sins so that we were so far separated from God, we can be, through Christ, restored in our fellowship with God, our Creator. And that's what Jesus came to do. That's what he was born to do. That's the whole reason why he left his majesty on high and was incarnate as one of us mortal human beings so that he could die. He was just like us, truly man, yet without sin. And that's key, of course. So he would 
he could be the spotless lamb that takes away the sins of the world. So before his passion, his suffering, Jesus was preparing his disciples for all that which was about to take place in what we call Holy Week. We just went through this. Jesus told his disciples in the upper room there, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled then, neither let them be afraid. That's right there in John 14. But his disciples would end up being very afraid anyway, won't they? The peace, the shalom Jesus was talking about that only he could bring was the objective peace with God. That is a cessation of the former enmity that we had as rebellious sinners before God. The peace that Jesus brings begins first with God and our reconciliation with him, and then it begins to manifest itself on a horizontal plane, human relationships with one another, starting with the family of God as we see here today, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, this also is what's behind the so-called passing of the peace. Do you remember that? The greeting that we used to do in our church service before COVID gave us cold feet about shaking warm hands. So from the family of God, then this peace starts spreading the forgiveness and love that we receive from God, and we extend it now horizontally even to our enemies. Remember that command? Jesus said, love your enemies. So Christianity can seem pretty easy at times until you start trying to incorporate that maneuver into your spiritual repertoire. Our resistant, sinful nature will be protesting the practice of that, loving your neighbor and loving your enemies, um, probably until kingdom come will be fighting that sinful nature. Ultimately, however, Christ's reconciling will completely bring about a perfect world that's coming that is in perfect harmony with God, and we will have perfect harmony with one another, our fellow man. And even Mother Nature, who's been throwing such hard tantrums lately, uh, she will no longer give catastrophic upheaval, whether it be in the sea, the sky, or the soil beneath our feet. Oh yeah, no more talking snakes either. No more snakes in the grass that will spoil our fun this next time around with the new heaven and the new earth. Nothing to derail our eternal bliss. All this comes with Jesus' shalom. Peace be with you. When Jesus comes that first Easter night in our gospel lesson to offer his peace to his disciples, Thomas for whatever reason, uh, we have no idea why he was not there for that first post-resurrection appearance with the other ten disciples. So through Thomas doubting, the skeptic in each one of us is vicariously granted by the risen Jesus himself a certain degree of freedom to inquire and seek convincing evidence ourselves regarding his resurrection from the dead. Thomas, before he let his heart soar with unspeakable joy, he wanted some proof that Jesus is alive because that um, news seemed too good to be true. And that kind of leads us back, at least momentarily, to what we were talking about regarding Christianity 
being an historical religion. What Christians are claiming, what the ten disciples were claiming before Thomas, is that death is defeated and Jesus' actual bodily resurrection is the proof. If true, I'm sure Thomas was mulling over the wild implications. This changes everything. It is indeed a game changer. If Jesus really rose, just as he said, then our place in the kingdom of God, our inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth, they are all secure. They're solid. Unless, of course, it's all based on a lie. If the resurrection of Christ, which billions of Christians celebrate most intently on Easter Sunday, but really every Lord's Day, like today, throughout the entire church year, if that key resurrection of Jesus never actually took place in real-life history, then, well, as St. Paul summed it up for the Corinthian believers, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. We're to be pitied. That quote is from last Sunday's epistle lesson, Easter Sundays. And there, Paul laid it on the line. He fully understood that this gospel, this good news of eternal life in the living Christ, is without a doubt historical in nature. That is, if the resurrection of Christ never happened bodily in real time and space, then, well, 1 Corinthians 15 describes the cascading collapse of this whole house of cards. This is what Paul says. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ then has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are all still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have just simply perished, dead as dogs. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Well, this is the risk, if you will, the cost of following a faith that is founded on facts, supposedly. If the facts don't square, or if they don't even exist in sufficient measure to justify placing one's faith in them, then such an historical faith like Christianity inevitably crumbles. All that any of the Jews, the Roman guards, or any of Jesus' enemies at all needed to do to bury this budding Christian movement called the Way the only thing they needed to do to keep it in the ground and keep it buried was to simply produce a body. Yes, produce Jesus' dead body, and perhaps people then would forget about the gaping holes in the chief priest's story about the hired guards falling asleep at the tomb uh, while the frightened disciples came and stole Jesus' battered, punctured body to make it all look like a resurrection, and then go on lying and even dying for a lie as, as martyrs. Never mind the inherent contradiction that if the guards in Teed were all sleeping, it would be punishable crime, by the way, that renders such an explanation highly unlikely to begin with. But then how, I ask you, would sleeping guards know who did anything if they were, in fact, slumbering away, oblivious to the events 
transpiring right underneath their snoring noses. If the frightened disciples really came out and pulled off such an impossible caper, moving the stone, taking the body, well, those disciples must have had one good whispering argument over which one of them would get stuck folding the grave clothes nice and neat before they all skedaddled. See, John makes a thing about that the folded up grave clothes. It's a very interesting detail. If you're committing a heist, you're not going to take the time to do that. An honest look at the facts surrounding Christ's resurrection reveals that none of these inconsistencies were ever cleared up and then no other plausible explanations from that time period in the first century were ever offered by those who denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Only centuries later, by modern skeptics, were any alternative theories put forward to attempt to explain away the resurrection. But such modern theories, they don't even measure up to the ill-conceived inconsistent theory circulated by these first century chief priests. For a thorough examination and repudiation of the more modern attempts to dismiss the historical resurrection of Jesus, I commend to you Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. Maybe some of you have seen that or read that. Now in 2017, they also released a very well-produced dramatization in movie theaters. This is a true story about a Chicago Tribune investigative journalist, Lee Strobel, himself an atheist, who attempted to save his wife from this cultic Christianity to which she recently converted. He thought, and properly I might add, that if he could disprove the, the resurrection of Christ, the rest of Christianity would fall like dominoes. Down comes the whole house of cards to change my metaphors. In his intensive, even obsessive researching that entailed many air miles around this country, and in fact around the world, Lee ended up converting to Christianity himself. Similarly, in our times, Pincus Lapid, a leading Orthodox Jew, also invested extensive time and brain power in investigating Jesus' resurrection. Now, he's an Orthodox Jew, as I mentioned. He wrote about his experience in which he states this, I accept the resurrection of Jesus, not as an invention of the community of disciples, but as an historical event. Yeah, you heard him right. His book is entitled, The Resurrection of Jesus, A Jewish Perspective. And the fascinating thing about Dr. Lapide is that unlikely Strobel, uh, though they both agree on the weight of evidence, clearly supporting the historicity of the resurrection, Dr. Lapide does not conclude that Jesus of Nazareth was therefore the uh, Jewish Messiah. He doesn't go there. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Yes, says Lapide. The facts definitely lead you nowhere else. Is Jesus... Uh, as another Jewish leader, Nicodemus, remember this conversation, as he once affirmed, uh, is Jesus a teacher come from God who performs signs, miracles, demonstrating that God is indeed with him? Lapid, yes again. That's true. Jesus was that miracle worker. Lapid even goes so far as to say that Jesus is a kind of Messiah 
or leader sent from God to forge a Gentile church on earth, which Jesus successfully did do. But Jesus is not the Jewish Messiah, mind you. That's what Lapid says. At least he is not on the basis of his first coming. So stay tuned, I suppose. Does that surprise you, though, a Orthodox Jew? As su- surprising that it indeed sounds to you and me, maybe we really shouldn't be all that surprised after all. Now, Jesus himself in Luke 16 relates that memorable story about the rich man and Lazarus. You guys remember this? Where the rich man dies and calls out from hell to Father Abraham to persuade Abraham to send some people back to his brothers, the rich man's brothers, to warn them of this place of torment. Jesus quotes Abraham's response back to the suffering rich man. Quote, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Unquote. Well, maybe you noticed as well, when we were in Matthew's gospel last week, it said, some doubted. Now mind you, This is right before Jesus ascends into heaven and is taken away in a cloud. He's about to impart his last words to his disciples, namely that famous Great Commission, as we call it, in Matthew 28. This is how Matthew describes the scene. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. That's what it says. They saw him, and they still doubted. Wait, what? This is the very end of the 40-day period, not Lent, the the ensuing 40-day period, in which Jesus, quote, gave many convincing proofs that he was alive, as Acts 1-3 records it. These people saw the resurrected Jesus with their own eyes, and probably multiple times. This was no mass hallucination when you factor in the 500 witnesses that saw Jesus at one time. They didn't just see or hear the first-hand evidence that other eyewitnesses put forward to convince them to believe Jesus was alive. These present saw and yet somehow, for some reason, still doubted. And really, all I can say to them and about them, and especially to Thomas here, Doubting Thomas, is thank you. Thank you that I am not the only one who has doubts from time to time and needs some Holy Spirit conviction and convincing. Thank you, dear Jesus, my Lord and my God, that you are ever gracious, ever patient, still allowing us to be called your own despite our intermittent struggles with our own doubts. One Byzantine saint, Gregory by name, likewise felt genuine charity and gratitude for, let's call him confessing Thomas, not doubting Thomas, because he made that wonderful confession. St. Gregory said about confessing Thomas, quote, more does the doubt of Thomas help us to believe than the faith of the disciples who all believed. I think God that Thomas doubted, for when he later touched the wounds in the flesh of his master, he healed in us the wounds of our unbelief. 
So then, Lord, by your Spirit, our prayer is that working through the hearing of your inspired word and the visible signs of your appointed sacraments, which, by the way, we can see, we can touch, and we can even taste, Lord, let them all strengthen our faith in you and our love for one another, which are of infinite importance. Amen. And now may he who began this good work and you bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.